Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Raphael. It's the high energy episode. <laughs> That's so funny because I didn't sleep very well last night. <laughs> yeah, kinda, but that gives you extra energy sometimes. I went to bed. I don't know if this happens to you or any of our listeners. I never um, go to bed. So. Yeah, that's right. I just you're, on the, you're on the Oprah schedule. I think she sleeps like two or three hours a night. Or she did yeah, in her yeah. heyday. Yeah. But uh, as an I artist... It worked out for her. I have a rule that I'm not supposed to work on an artwork uh, within like three hours of going to bed. And the problem mm-hmm. is that... Uh, if I do, I can't sleep because I'll start to my Too mind exciting. will start just yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll start to think oh I got to solve this problem how could I do it and then you get into that artist problem solving mode and then that's a really hard part of my brain to turn off and yeah, uh, yeah. I have that in the morning so sometimes uh, it I have a lot of Skype calls in the morning with the Netherlands and people in that time zone mm-hmm. and then it's six hours earlier so I'll wake up and I'll wake up too early like. I didn't sleep enough. I wake up at five or six, and I mm. know I should sleep a little more. But they're just excited thinking. about the day. Yeah, you start thinking about all of the stuff. Yeah, it's but like. Then, but then I have the freedom to take naps in the afternoon, so that deals with it. Like it's not even stress. It's more like you're right. Like it's excitement. Uh, sometimes yeah. it's stress, but most often it's excitement. And I'm tr- and I'm excited about solving the problem. Like ah, sleep's getting in the way in this particular case. So that's why I. <laughs> I, I wonder if if our listeners are like. Oh boy, these guys can't sleep because their career is so exciting. <laughs> oh no, no, I'm sure our listeners. Uh, but it's have, a common thing of like work taking over the brain and it's hard to sleep. Yeah, I think it's it, sometimes it is stress. I'm not going to say it's not like the, some, the night before a very important performance or something like that. Uh, I might, if the performance is first thing in the morning or something, I might not sleep very well. And that used to be the case all of the time. But now it's mostly just getting worked up about a problem I'm trying to solve. But it's it's always funny hearing humans being really excited about things that uh, millennia ago didn't exist. And so, so back then, adrenaline and things like that existed for survival. And I was like, oh boy, I'm so excited about my calligraphy class. I can't sleep. <laughs> but I think that there are certain like uh, historical figures that, well, I mean, sleep wasn't even structured the same way. This is not what this today's episode is about, but people used to get up in the middle of the night to do work. I can't remember what they, they called that, but it was like, a, you know, it was a ritual that you would... The idea that we would sleep for eight hours was ridiculous. There was mm-hmm. a, a you would get a certain amount of work done in the middle of the night, and then you'd go back to bed. Yeah. Um, so it, there's other ways to do it, but anyway, last night I didn't do it well. But today, no. uh, which is Sunday, not Saturday, we usually record on a Saturday, right? It's been no. I think we were very steady on the Sundays, and then mm-hmm. we started mixing it up the last few episodes. <clears throat> I just thought it might be a nice segue. <laughs> <laughs> to, to Saturday because normally we record on Saturday mornings and Saturday mornings uh, for me as a child were known for uh, for one thing which was like uh, pretty crappy cartoons like I'd get up way too early and then watch cartoons and you wanted to talk about cartoons today Saturday morning cartoons were labeled animated radio by I think it was Chuck Jones the, the, the guy who did the Looney Tunes he was very dismissive of Saturday morning cartoons because Saturday morning cartoons were a lot of stills in the mouth, only in the mouth would move. <laughs> it's true. I grew up watching some, like it, the earlier you got up in the morning, the worse the quality of the cartoon, like it was re- <laughs> yeah. they would have reruns. Yeah. And one that was my favorite was called Rocket Robin Hood. <laughs> and it was like Robin Hood, but he had like jetpacks and like rocket shoes. <laughs> yeah. It was like a sci-fi Robin Hood. It was weird, but everything was medieval still. 
and but like barely anything moved like his mouth would move and because he was on rockets they didn't need to animate his legs (laughs) just like scroll across the screen yeah uh but but i love maybe uh, maybe we can uh, a little bit of introduction why we want to talk about animation this episode it's maybe that artists growing up with the computer as their main tool and then whatever outlet it has later, whether it's painting or film or performance, but you have the the computer and the computer is a a multitasking tool. So you can write texts and you can record sounds, but very quickly you find out that you can animate an image and it's very natural. It's very different when you have an easel and paints and things like that. The step to animation is very far, but I think nowadays it, Moving images are just an inherent part of everything. It's almost uh, it's embedded in everything. So it, whether it's animated GIFs or the way a window opens or closes, or the way your emails come in, or you might have Clippy walking around. Hmm. And so, I feel like moving images are so. It's almost like salt in cooking. It's just in everything now. It's interesting you say that because um, in design over the last few years. There have been two kind of developments that relate to this theme uh, that I didn't think of until just now. But like one, what is that animation is a part of almost all brand guidelines um, and also UX guidelines, like express. Like how are we going to, how are things going to move within our product user experience? What's our, what's our identity in movement? Yeah, exactly. How do we express ourselves? Um, and Google famously, I think, in their human interface guidelines, made a big song and dance about this. Um, and even when a new brand comes out, they always do an animation section. That was not typical before. The other uh, big change is in this what's called story-driven design. And some people say that it came out of Pixar, but like this idea of storyboarding or like using storyboards, which are traditional to film and animation, to talk about the user experience. Um, and a, a friend of mine actually who worked at Pixar, he went on and, and worked with Airbnb to develop their storyboards, which became kind of fundamental to how Airbnb runs their whole business. Uh, but to think that anima- uh, like an animator from Pixar helped uh, develop Airbnb into a hit product is kind of an interesting thought. Yeah, and it, it, it's it's almost, I think, our eyes are just used to things moving now. It's very hard for people to be captivated by something that doesn't move. Yeah, yeah. So, like, so you're saying that uh, that still images are potentially more resonant in a, or more important now, or less important? Well, I, I just think, for example, if you walk around the street and you have a bunch of uh, posters that were pasted, and next to that you have a moving billboard, it just captures the eye. So oh, the moving billboard does. It, it grabs attention. It's interesting though, because I was talking to um, a friend recently who works for Sedition, which is that like digital art edition platform and um she was saying samsung's about to like eat the whole market which i thought was kind of (laughs) a funny thing for her to say but they have this new tv and when it's not on it's a screensaver um and the screensaver they're what they're doing is they're licensing artworks from all of these other platforms and you can also buy art through the the screen so the reason they're going to win is because it's like a much better screen, better price point. But what's interesting is it's it's a static um, static image; it doesn't move. Yeah. They chose yeah. not to make it move because it's yeah. a power saving <laughs> feature. But also that they're taking advantage of that and saying, "Well, art well, doesn't yeah. move." 
it, it's interesting because you have this tool in everyone's home that is off most of the time mm-hmm. and there's screens in everybody's home almost in every room and you're thinking well this has the possibility to show moving images when you're not watching tv but turns out that's kind of disturbing and it's maybe not what you want around you all the time the same way you have tvs in restaurants all the time and it's very distracting that's what i thought immediately is that <clears throat> in the home you're trying to suppress uh, distraction and so it was inter- at first i was like that sounds stupid they had this like amazing technology they could probably have made it move yeah. um but i think probably uh, it might also be a conscious decision yeah but it, i just wanted to do an episode about cartoons because i've always been a fan of animation and what i particularly like about it is this this history of forced abstraction of having to reduce imagery because of the technology mm-hmm. so when we think when you go back to moving images uh, the first moving images were films and pretty quickly there was also animated moving images and were the, first mo- to, were the first moving images filmed though? What about a zoetrope? Like they, weren't they photographic? They like were little, a Bridge sort of. No, but there were little toys that you could. Oh, maybe get. it went hand in hand, yeah. There were little but, toys like zoetropes and stuff. Like yeah. That. But maybe you're right. Mybridge was the first person to do a motion kind of study. Motion capture. But I think that was, before that, they had. it was just that they didn't know how people walked. Like no one had done. Yeah. Well, the, uh, there was the whole thing. Like people like Leonardo da Vinci were looking at birds and trying to capture how does a bird move Mm -hmm. but there was no um, empirical evidence whether those drawings were right or wrong he's like I think this is how a bird people thought that horses moved a certain way and Muybridge proved that both the front and the uh, back legs are far apart and then close together it's not like they both go front or both go back right 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 yeah and that's it, it those legs go so fast you can't see it. The human eye can't register that. Mm-hmm. So that's always very interesting to me, these beginnings of a technology and then the research that goes into it and, and the, the assumptions that we make, like, oh, I think this is how it works, but actually, no, it doesn't. But, but what I'm getting at is this this exaggeration or caricature of reality that is so embedded in the history of animation that I've always been attracted to that, this sort of escapism and this other reality mm-hmm. kind of the way the, the movie Ro- who framed roger rabbit addresses that in in a way just like this unreality that's much more fun oh i see like going into cartoon land or whatever. yeah and and how disappointing it always is when you step out of cartoon land like the the simpson the the flintstones real live action movie or whatever cartoon they make and turn it into mm-hmm. Have you ever seen when they try to find people who look like Beavis and Butthead or The Simpsons? <laughs> right. <laughs> and you, you step out of that exaggerated reality. Yeah. Uh, there's just always been things that you can do at cartoons that you can't do in reality, like people's eyeballs coming out of their heads. And, yeah, I've always... I, I think we talked about this before. I've, uh, I don't like talking about politics because it's just too much reality. Mm. I mean, it's funny, though, because uh, cartoons were originally, uh, like the term cartoon, if we're going to talk about animation in that context, mm-hmm. uh, was originally, A, an art art term, right? It, I'm not sure if you're familiar. Yeah, but like, are you talking about the, the, the cardboard studies for larger work? Yeah, cardboard studies for larger work, yeah. or prior to so, that, it would be like large, uh, they would do like pinhole sketches that they'd apply yeah. charcoal to to make frescoes, and they'd punch... I just, Punch yeah, I just want to charcoal through the the fresco. In, intersect the, the word cartoon <laughs> or, or carton in in Dutch 
literally means cardboard. So yeah. uh, uh, animated cartoon came out of that later. But what they would do is if they would make a fresco or a tapestry, you would make a rough drawing on a huge part of thick paper, thick enough so that you could use pinpoints through it and then uh, sort of make a, a design or a map of what the f- final work would be without color. Yeah. So that again goes to that cartoony, exaggerated simplification abstraction. Yeah, but what was in like the, it became associated with um, with what we understand today as cartoons in a satirical political context, actually, which yeah. I thought you might get mad yeah, at yeah, me yeah, for yeah. bringing politics into this. But I think it's interesting because you mean newspaper cartoons like uh, caricatures of politicians. Yeah, exactly. So I think. Uh, the terms attributed to Punch magazine, which was around in the 1800s, was a sort of a political satirical magazine. And the one on one occasion, I guess uh, the the magazine was um, was referring to. I guess they wanted to put up uh, frescoes in the Palace of Westminster in London, and. So to make fun, like they thought that was really pompous, and so in their own political drawing in the magazine, um, because there was a tour of cartoons for Westminster, they called all of the drawings that they made satirically about politics, right? Like their satirical cartoon, their satirical drawings, they called them, started calling them cartoons, as if they were so important that they should be frescoes. So it was a joke, right? Because they weren't yeah. important. Yeah, yeah. Um, that they were, you know, that, that, but, that, that was sort of the joke. But so cartoons are always kind of a, a crude version of reality. Yeah, but I mean, they started to become associated with uh, like political satire, which I think is interesting. Like the word cartoon itself makes fun of itself, um, and then you know that became the language of a simplified drawing. So now, a simplified drawing is associated with this what was a fresco, which I think is an interesting history. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, and yeah, then eventually and, and evolved into what we have today. It's interesting as opposed to the um, simplification in painting, which went from being as photorealistic as possible to being as personal as possible and then ending in total abstraction. And that's been a journey, I I call that abstraction abstraction, uh, for the sake of beauty, and the other one is uh, abstraction for the sake of necessity. Mm -hmm. And they kind of arrive at the same point, and even a lot of the avant-garde artists were big fans of early animation. There's uh, letters of Mondrian or postcards to his friends and he would draw little Disney characters because he thought that was a very interesting modern take on uh, uh, what was happening and it was new and it was fresh mm. and uh, exciting so there's really a similar thing to the design of a character like Mickey Mouse and, and the work of Mondrian to me. yeah well I think I think there's almost like even a split between like animation and cartoons don't really meet at first right so because cartoons are really about exaggeration and satire an extension of like um you know the court gesture in a way right like just political uh making fun of politics which goes back actually that magazine punch i mentioned was is a reference to punch and judy like previously the history of media it was really difficult to make fun of politicians without either being hung killed right? like like you could you couldn't do that without getting into trouble and so yeah. cartoons though and and previously so puppets punch punch and judy are two puppets that were the first sort of um satirical context for making fun of the king and of course there's the jester that did that as well but like 
Uh, this is Stephen Colbert of the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then the next level after that, you get these like these really simplified drawings, um, the cartoons of, of Punch Magazine. And, and what we have today, of course, are New Yorker cartoons and all kinds of other stuff. But yeah. I really, that's like, it's about exaggeration within this simplified context. It's removal. It's getting out of yourself, right? So it's like, I'm not criticizing the government. This, But this drawing is doing so as this third party in the a same really... Same way the puppeteer with a ventriloquist... Uh, yeah, sort of. It's like I'm not. I'm not making fun of you. My puppet is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's exactly that, and that's a really exciting, I think, thing for the history of art and communication. Yeah, and that's maybe also that distance to reality, because a lot of cartoons often don't use humans as the main characters, but animals, and we forgive them for doing things that if humans did them, they would be very offensive. But it's a little mouse doing it. He's chopping off the head of a, <laughs> yeah. of a duck or whatever. So it's funny. Yeah, and it makes it safe for us to talk about difficult stuff, I think. And, and yeah. I mean, in the, I, I don't know whether, you know, as cartoons became animated, you, you mentioned earlier, like, um, Bugs Bunny and those early cartoons. Yeah. I saw a few of those. I know that they ran before movies, and I remember seeing a few at some point in my life. I can't remember, but they were really violent. Like they were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were very unfiltered, and uh, and I I think a big part of it was also this freedom because it was before the main movie. It was only six minutes, so maybe the censors were not as strict. But I saw one like with Woody the Woodpecker once, and it was like. I swear to God, he was like killing people, and like there was some rape, <laughs> kind of like in yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was like there was a lot of weird stuff going. On. There were a lot of, I don't know, and I think that's around the Second World War, right? So there were a lot of there was a lot going on that was like morally in question. Well, the Second World War was already pretty late for animation. They were already mm-hmm. doing full features, I think. So, so what, what do you what do you know about that era though for that well, early animation? I, I read the Walt Disney biography and one of the interesting things to me was that the animation has always been a very labor intensive uh, uh, endeavor so it was expensive basically and he would make the six minute cartoons uh, because he was a storyteller and he had a lot of things to say and mm. wanted to do a lot of gags but it, he just broke even on the six minute cartoons but what made money was the merchandising around it so the physicalization mm. of the humor which was a very tricky thing to do because you have this very lively characters, and how do you capture that in a puppet? And it so, took a, it took a while for for Walt Disney's stuff to catch on, and I guess like Steamboat Willie was the first hit, right? Um, yeah, and then he he had a he was more of the idea person, and he had a main animator uh, who I think was of Dutch descent. So his name is Up Iwerks, mm-hmm. and he designed Mickey Mouse to. Walt Disney specifications like no make it a little cuter make it a little rounder but he he made the drawings yeah and other companies then sort of thought well we don't think Disney Disney's just a businessman but this up guy he's really the genius so they they snatched him and Disney was very bummed Um, because I he he made a a a rabbit character uh, Oswald the rabbit I think after that but the, the the animations were the stories were just boring the gags were not funny so it didn't succeed, and Disney just hired other animators and uh, marched on. But I know that um, the first stuff before all that, actually, I just remembered was like this uh, mix of animation and yeah. uh, film. Alice, there was like this Alice in Wonderland character. Yeah, or yeah, like yeah. Because that. that was, I think, that was easier to do. It was cheaper so if you draw was, on top of film. 
That's right. So they're like animated elements within a film or something. It was also a bit collagey. Like a lot of things weren't drawn, but more stop motion. Mm-hmm. But I mean, so so what happens next? Because I know that uh, Disney Studios... <clears throat> I well, they to... came up with the first feature length uh, animated cartoon and people thought that was crazy. Who's going to watch animated images for an hour and a half? That doesn't mm-hmm. make any sense. And was that Fantasia? Was that the... No, that was No, the that first. was Snow White. That Snow was the White. first one. <laughs> right. um, so in... people were really like, are you out of your mind? And it almost bank... He put every resource into it. It's a bit like Elon Musk where he just take the resources of the previous project and make mm-hmm. something crazier because they had almost gone bankrupt a few times as i understand it yeah uh, or i've yeah. heard before and and so as they were making snow white did they use like a um, uh, rotoscopic process i think for the human characters they did yeah for so, the for snow white and the prince so they're also the kind of the lamest part of the movie yeah i mean so for our listeners that rotoscopy or uh rotoscoping is tracing over Trace. film well if Would we you... can go back a little bit further there's there's Gertie the dinosaur which is the first real animated cartoon and a big part of it that it was a bet that the the cartoonist said I can make an animated character and the other people on the other side of the bet said well then make it a dinosaur so you can't film something and use that oh. that guideline uh, because it's easy to trace stuff but we want you to really create a character out of nothing, so make a dinosaur. So there's no way to film a dinosaur, so you have to really draw every frame. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't realize that, and that was not a Disney character. That's no, like, no, this was before. It's 1914 or something. Okay, okay. Yeah. I'm not. I wasn't familiar with that. Yeah. Um, the, I, I don't know if we're just going to have a history class, but this is. <laughs> I think out of all visual history, this is the stuff I read the most on. So there's interesting ideas like the idea of celluloid so you don't have to draw the background every time like that took 20 or 30 years for 20 or 30 years people were drawing the background every frame even though the background was the same well i have to say when i was a kid i was like really into animation and i built my own um like uh what do you call it like light box or backlit kind of desk Mm -hmm. thing Mm -hmm. like I bought the plexiglass. It's really fun to do, yeah. Yeah, so it's that really I could fun. do, so I could do onion skins, which is like back in the day, you did like tracing paper, uh, you know, for each frame, and you like. So I had all these books on how to draw, and it's funny that we were both drawn to that, like because I well, did a I lot. I think of, it's a nerdy thing of technology and uh, drawing. But the first application I had together. on my computer was called, um, well, I had HyperCard, which allowed for some basic animation, but then I got this program called Animation Works when I was a kid and you know like it was really basic it was on a black and white uh, Mac SE and I you know I was animating one frame at a time and the tool but the tool was built to make animation easier on a computer but even back then like it was pretty amazing what like because it's really just one image after the next and these were black and white images and would you would you have a tool to see the previous image yeah, fifty like percent behind what you're drawing. <clears throat> yeah, like, but there was no such because it was only a two color display. It would just show it like really funny things. It would show it like, um, like we were just talking about with the cartoon, like little punched holes. So it just showed. Yeah, you, yeah They yeah, called yeah, it yeah. like this onion skin look. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I talk a lot of with friends about it, the internet not really going in a direction that we like. Mm-hmm. And a big part of it for me is that I like technologies when they're at their beginning. So. Basically, the internet is starting to look more and more like TV. Mm. But I like the early stages of... We talked about that. You said computers always have to move forward and have to get better. And I'm like, I'm not so sure. I, th- I think computers were more computer-like when they were less high-res. 
Well, I mean, I'm, I'm anti like iPad or iPhone for as creative devices because they don't let you manipulate, um, you know, the DNA of the machine. And that, my early mm-hmm. experience with computers was reconfiguring and like writing my own software and yeah. you know remixing things but but the, l- yeah there's something there's something very interesting about oh we can't show grayscale so we'll use this metaphor of cardboard punch holes to make you understand that that's the previous frame yeah 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 they they did a lot with very little i'm still amazed that this computer which now would you know fit inside of like a i don't know like you could probably put a thousand of them in your phone uh, i was just as creative or more creative in that space. It does remind mm-hmm. me too of like um, there's an artist friend of uh, mine, Nicholas Sassoon, and he still makes work this way. And he, he does makes even two bit work basically. Yeah, he does this two bit work, and he makes the animations even but more. One bit. Yeah, one bit when it's yeah, black and white. Yeah, I guess yeah. it's black and white. So it's, yeah, let's just well, two, <laughs> yeah, it sounds insulting to say call it two bit work. But what he does is like these either large images or scenes, or sometimes just a small one. And the animation's even more basic. It's just like two images passing o- over one another to create, create moiré effects. And that moiré is the intersection, you know, in a black and white context of like uh, two contrasts, so white and black in this case. And it make it gives this illusion of like, say, a stripe passing through the image yeah. or something. It, 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 I don't know if you have the same pop filter as I do in front of your microphone. And it's like a few layers of thin fabric. And yeah, when you yeah. move your head around, you see a, a Nicholas Sassoon piece. That's right. I mean, when I was a kid, I had this storybook for children that you know had this a similar kind of game, and it was just endlessly fascinating to see how this thing, that was just a normal book, could come to life when you'd pass on you know this lens over top of it. Actually, it was yeah. like more like a lenticular, but it's kind of lenticular kind of operates according to similar principles. Yeah. And so there's there's two interesting sides to me in cartoons, and and one is the formal side, the the, the invention to make things appear for your eye in a certain way when they're actually totally not, mm-hmm. and like that the exaggeration of a, of representing something comes closer to reality than being photorealistic. Mm-hmm. And the other part for me is that it's somehow also made a certain type of humor and there are certain tropes that just came out of that formal side of like oh if we the idea of 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 a wolf looking at a girl and his eyeballs popping out and his tongue rolling out of his mouth it, those kind of jokes like that kind of flat humor mm-hmm. almost yeah maybe that came out of slapstick but those are just two areas of the formal side and the storytelling side. Sure, it took some. It took to something me. that in stage shows was probably, or in puppets, as I mentioned with Punch and Judy, was was possible and exaggerated it to the you know to this ridiculous level, right? Until and, and yeah, created, maybe exaggeration is the key word. And created yeah. new styles from there forward. I mean, it, it does beg the question: like, what's going on with animation now? And have we like? Is it because as we've as the technology's gotten better? It seems to be the race is to make it more and more realistic. Yeah. Um, like the number of uh, computer animated things that where it seems to be like, well, how close to reality can we get this? How And conversations are around the Uncanny Valley. For those yeah. that don't know, of course, the Uncanny Valley is like this weird feeling you have when things are so close to reality that they're not, but they're not quite there and it gives you a feeling of discomfort like you know well, even like though, the final fantasy movie was a breakthrough in uh, animation yeah seemingly like they always use the polar express as one of the 
Have you ever seen that film? <laughs> no. Anyway, by making the characters too photorealistic, it gave, and it's a children's film, it made it very, it's a very uncomfortable film to watch. <laughs> but Final Fantasy is There's many that. moments in animation where they get it wrong, but uh, it, I, I will say this in defense of new animation is it, sometimes it's a bit too photorealistic for my taste, but in terms of action and movement, they're so far ahead of where animation has ever been. So mm-hmm. if you see a chase scene in a, in a modern uh, Pixar movie or something like that, uh, and, and you see a chase scene in an older hand-animated film, just the feeling, the thrill of uh, sort of that roller coaster feeling is, mm-hmm. is so far ahead of where it ever was. Yeah, and it, it makes me wonder, like, um, I mean, where animation ends and where interactivity might begin, <laughs> like... Um, you know, so if you hand off to video games at a certain point, like there's exaggeration and 3D animation and everything, but within an interactive environment, does that still, you know, is that where we're going next? Because a lot of people talk about how, I don't know, this is common in design circles. Let me just put it out there as an argument or a point, which is that after a certain point, animating like cell by cell or frame by frame is no longer adequate for the complexity that you want to introduce within the world that you're creating and create you know animating is like creating a world but at a certain point physics engines are introduced and this happened ar- already of course in computer it's kind animation. of like rotoscoping yeah but as soon as the physics engine is introduced you're taking um you know you're taking some of the control away from the you're animator taking the hand out of it yeah you're taking the hand the out of artistic it. term yeah. and you're introducing the algorithm and yeah, so the hand is maybe an interesting term in animation yeah, well, yeah, I mean, expand on that if you... It, well, the, it, it, traditionally in painting, there's the hand, so there's the way the artist hand, handles the pencil or brush. And if you think of an artist with a strong hand, you think of someone like Picasso or maybe Keith Haring. Like they have a very particular hand. Mm-hmm. And or style. So you, see, you see the personality of the artist in the way the medium is applied and the way the, the forms uh, appear. Uh, and... In animation, that was always about the walk of the character. So mm. it wasn't so much about drawing a character as a still, but it was but the personality of the walk in, of the character. And like, does the character feel like it has gravity? That's a really hard thing to do. The way the legs touch the floor and kind of bounce, and mm. the way it, it. So a master of animation, and, and and animators are kind of like actors. So you could bring different emotions into those different walks. Mm-hmm. And um, once you take that out, and it becomes more an engineered walk that is closer to reality. It's just, that, and that's something I deal with in my own work is is it's finding the hand in the algorithm. So how do you deal with that? Like, where do you draw the line, or do you draw a line? Yeah, it's kind of like not drawing the line, and you let the computer draw the line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but as an artist, are you, are you? Do you feel like that's a compromise, or you're in collaboration with that machine? I just think it's new territory, mm-hmm. so, and, and it's probably the same. Going back to Saturday morning cartoons, I always wondered at what point is this going to stop because it's it's still interesting to me, and I'm way too old for this. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of nerds. Uh, we have a lot of listeners who would uh, we could call nerds, and I think a lot of nerds watch cartoons even when they're uh, past the appropriate age, like. Why is that? I mean, why are you saying appropriate age? Because it's interesting because cartoons started as actually, like I mentioned, even in the political well, sense, if, like for adults. Well, if we talk about politics, at some point as an adult, you're supposed to watch the news and not cartoons. 
Yeah, but the you cartoons were the <laughs> cartoons were the news. That's all. That's all I'm saying is that they were the news, right? There's those so. funny a- animations in Asia where they bring the news as 3D animation. That's right. I mean, of course, <laughs> and we all know the New Yorker cartoons. Everyone reads the yeah. you know cartoons in the New Yorker or whatever. And the, but that's and then then they don't read. But the there's there's a thing of like uh, you're young and you wake up with all this energy and you watch cartoons in the morning and mm-hmm. your parents they worked all week and they're glad that you're behind the TV and they can sleep until nine but let's talk about that for a second because we did start the episode on this note and I don't know if I'm sidetracking us but like children's cartoons um, are actually a very brief blip in the history of animation uh, and and even culturally speaking um, so they were they became popular in the 60s 70s and 80s but actually starting in the 80s they begin to decline and there's a number Equality. of there's a number of political things, and then the '90s they're basically killed outright. Um, and they started out in the '60s and '70s as like a way for advertisers to draw a children's audience. Uh, well, basically for the TV networks to, to draw advertisers to advertise to children and to build that audience around a sh- like a common like a time that didn't wasn't that lucrative for them. Um, but in the 19, I, like I, the, I guess, legitimately, governments were worried about advertising to children, but that was always part of the model. So it was really about selling stuff to kids. In the 80s, they changed the law, or they like Reagan uh, deregulated uh, what how you could uh, make cartoons and advertise to children, and in fact, made it possible for toy manufacturers to, like you couldn't previously. You couldn't, if you were, uh, let's say you made toys, you couldn't have your own cartoon where you, you, you know, the toy was the you character. You promoted the toy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But Reagan's so like... G.I. Like, Joe and He-Man and, and yeah, those yeah. kind of cartoons. Yeah, yeah. Um, Care Bears. But then if you go back to Disney, uh, those six-minute cartoons, they were kind of more for adults. Yeah. Because they were before the movie and it was a night out and the kids wouldn't come. Well, yeah, and, and they were... Yeah, they were before the film. They're, I mean, they were expensive to make. Let's not be like that's why when you were talking about the radio, was it, what were you calling them radio images or something like that? Uh, animated radio. And so the Chuck Saturday Jones it, yeah. was insulting the Saturday morning cartoons. Yeah, well, Saturday morning cartoons were really trying to spend the least amount of money because it costs less than you hiring actors and doing a full production. They were trying to they were trying to create media that cost the least amount of money to attract an advertising dollar. That's why yeah. they existed for the period they did. And then they were supercharged by Reagan when he said, like, not only that, but you can sell merchandise through yeah, the cartoons. Yeah. You can sell cigarettes to kids. <laughs> yeah, no worries. We got you. And so G.I. Joe, yeah, Barbie, all of this, like anything was game. But in the nineties, they changed the law back again and they forced Okay. Networks to have educational content, and they also <laughs> regulated against how long. No, but there was one really interesting change, which is that they said you could only advertise for ten minutes every hour. So cartoons now had to be longer, which cost a little bit more, <laughs> and and so longer than normal uh, live action broadcasting. And I think it was NBS or CBS. I can't remember. <clears throat> they figured out. That it was cheaper to do news programming, <clears throat> excuse me, than and or sports than cartoons, and so that's why today, if you were to turn on the the TV on a Saturday morning, you're probably going to see mostly news uh, news anchors and such, because they could yeah. get more advertising dollars, basically. But it all came down to the but, literally minutes of advertising dollars. But the, it's interesting because you had the the 80s cartoons which they have their own charm in an ironic way, but they don't have the craft of the the golden age cartoons. Mm-hmm. 
and then all of a sudden the Simpsons come along with this idea mm. of animation as a sitcom for adults with for prime adult time. topics. Yeah. But still, uh, cartoons just have this appeal to children's eyeballs. I think just bright colors and simplified forms, uh, no matter what they're talking about, they could be talking about Proust and <laughs> Sartre, yeah. as long as those uh, uh, cartoons are in bright colors and everything's animated and they kind of look cute. Yeah, you could give you could feed kids any content. Yeah, it's um, it's it's. Really I mean, it, it 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 first it was The Simpsons and then it was South Park, but the, and that was kind of controversial because kids were kind of uh, animations were labeled as content for kids, and all of a sudden the the characters are late at night on TV and they're saying naughty things. Mm-hmm. But don't forget also like the yeah I don't know whether. So when I was, this is actually an interesting topic, which is when you were a kid watching The Simpsons, Conan O'Brien, I think, was probably the the chief writer for The Simpsons at that time. And uh, I don't know if I actually got all the jokes, because like when I go back today and I watch those episodes, I'll be like, oh, yeah, like there's actually a lot more here. Um, And they were very politically satirical, like they would take whatever the news of the day was and they and they still do this, right? They'd repackage it for you. And they do this thing of, but as a child, I, th- I'm not sure that's what I was into. I was like, I think I was just no. Like, you understand different things as different a child. Different things, yeah. Yeah, but because it, I think as a child, you, you're maybe you're dreamier and you're more. You're more. I think as a child, you, it's easier to be surprised and to be uh, blown away by something. So already, for a child, if like an apple eats a human instead of a human eats an apple, that's already enough that's really funny <laughs> right right yeah so uh, i guess that was there was enough there for kids that i just don't know if it's just the bright colors i think i you know don't have a cow is funny I, to I, me i just think i have a child brain a big part of my brain and i am attracted to bright colors so i think uh, but or simplified images and bright colors might here's my other here's another point or theory and there's probably like psych children's psychology on this but it might be an like a, a a crack in the door that opening into the adult world and so it's like because i often talk about humor being a back door to talk about difficult um things the same way a satirical cartoon makes it easy to observe something that's politically complicated by making it you know this object outside of oneself i think a cartoon allows children to do the same thing which is to ex- observe an adult theme in a way that feels like comfortable and not scary because i don't know if you've got nieces but or i nephews. agree with you that that a lot of those topics flash by and they don't even know that the like uh, marge simpson might be talking about not getting enough uh, action in the bedroom from uh, homer but she might say it in a funny way and the kids don't understand but the, then maybe lisa or bart have an issue at school which resonates very very much with children as they're watching and adults kind of go over that yeah i was just thinking that like well i don't i have nieces and both of them get are there are level like as they've grown up i've observed that they were scared of regular media so the normal media made for adults they would they would say to me i don't want to watch that it's scary i'm like what's how i feel and then <laughs> and then certain animated movies they would love and then but some animated movies would have scary parts and they would like as it, you know they'd be more adult themes quite often and they would uh, this is, push that this away this is funny cuz it goes back to when i was 5 we went to the movie theater for the first time mm-hmm. and there was a a disney movie and disney was kind of uh, not that popular because they were too cutesy and cartoons were more like he- He-Man and G.I. Joe. Yeah. So they made this 
it's something in the cauldron. It's an animation that's not that well known, and it was really dark, and because they had to appeal. There was also a period of in the 70s and 80s of a lot of feature-length cartoons like Heavy Metal or maybe sort of Robert Crumb-inspired cartoons that were about counterculture. So Disney was trying to be hip, and by being hip, they made this dark <laughs> cartoon with a lot of skulls, and I was five years old, and my mom went with me to the theater, my first movie, and <laughs> totally traumatized. This like, what is Disney doing? <laughs> so that was a big fail. But wasn't Bambi pretty traumatizing? I mean, when, the, when Bambi gets burned, uh, or the mother dies in the forest fire or whatever? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so, like, but it does make it approachable enough, right? Like, if it was a, a real I, animated, yeah. it, not an animated deer, but a real deer that someone like burned alive on film, that would be like untenable for a child, but they can sort my, of watch. My my uh, theory is that when children are born, um, the senses are not separated yet. So smell and hearing and touch and seeing it. I basically think for babies it's like being on acid. So you're just just the signals coming in, and you have no idea how to differentiate. Mm-hmm. And as you grow older, you you define things more and more. You're like that's an apple. That's the taste of an apple. That's the color of an apple. That's the bite, and that's the crunch, and that's the uh, you 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 start. And even if if you get older, you understand the chemistry of the apple, and you understand how it's born. You you understand more and more, and so you're seeing less. You're um, and so I think that if you imagine if you're five years old you're still on the trajectory from acid head to grumpy old man and uh, I think cartoons just are easier to absorb and to recognize because of the exaggeration and I think that's a very appealing part of it that it it helps the world is very fuzzy and then mm-hmm. the, the exaggeration of cartoons helps you grasp things right it makes the yeah, I mean, I often talk about how an artist's job, too, is kind of to make the invisible visible, but it makes these things that you might take for granted, it allows you to exaggerate them or change their their meaning or, you know, to use metaphor or other stylistic cues mm-hmm. to alter perception, right? That's yeah. ultimately what you're doing. And it's even the, the, the first known sculpture, I think, the Venus of Willendorf, it's also a caricature. It's an exaggeration of fertility of a very fertile women, woman. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, like that's uh, that's common to representation. You know, all the way back to the beginning of art, and certainly like in if you were yeah, the cave if, paintings were totally cartoony. <laughs> yeah, and then like as you move on, like if you're a patron and you were getting your portrait done, you weren't going to be satisfied with a portrait that matched reality. You'd want to look prouder or so subjectivity becomes is a big part of that representation is plastic surgery creating uh, cartoon characters in the real world yeah <laughs> um like o- oland is it oland the Catwoman? yeah uh, but even regular it just people like i want perfect teeth because i want to look like a cartoon or... yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's it could be i mean that's where i was like starting to get into what's next so as as you think of, as we think about animation becoming more and more um, about fi- the you know simulating uh, the computer simulating physical worlds or creating worlds, the characters also might start to have you know AI systems that control them. The voices might be synthesized, not from real people, right? Like, but yeah, like they might yeah, be voice synthesizers. In, yeah, you, you could just input everything in the computer, and it just generates characters and voices. And yeah, because Disney still makes films where so here's an interesting thing so like 
there's a piece of software that I was really into because uh, I do computer vision with augmented reality and stuff. It was called FaceShift. And FaceShift was making it economical to do something that they're doing in animated films all the time now, or at least when they're doing special effects in movies, which is they're drawing little dots all over real actors' faces and then you know watch recording the way their face moves um, and then translating that, putting that in a computer and then making that move an animated character's face, like a puppet, uh, right? Yeah, so basically syncing the mouth to the voice. Yeah, and there's the, there's of course, there's the famous, uh, like, there's, like, a few famous performers in that world, like, because it's its its own art in a way, like Gollum. I can't remember the actor's name. Ah, hang on. We got to get this in. Who plays Gollum? <laughs> uh, and... Uh, yeah, I know what you mean. He he also did Andy Circus. The Apes. He's like the motion yeah. capture guy. Yeah, yeah. Andy Circus. He's like yeah. He's in Planet of the, the like whenever you see a documentary about um, you know Isn't computer that wild animation. That there's just one person that's that good at it. Like they, you know, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's crazy, <laughs> but it's crazy because also because Gollum. Let's take Gollum as an example. He's an animated character in a film, but he's actually. You know, attributed all it's of his, all the animation yeah. and everything is attributed to Andy Circus, right? But yeah. like, let's that's where we are today. But where we might be next is it's not Andy Circus. Like, this is the last I think, like the last human moment. Like, and it's because we like like the reason we love an Andy Circus or something like that is because we're like, oh no, it hasn't all become the domain of the computer, right? Like, there's still a, you can't that imperfection that the the human introduces through the motion capture. Like, think about all the layers of mediation that go into you know actually animating column that way. And we're like, no, but it's still a human performance. Yeah. But I I feel like we're like I don't know maybe that's kind of where glitch art comes in where they. The, the technology can do it so well that yeah. then it becomes interesting when you use it in a wrong way. Well, it's just because in yeah, no, you're right. Like, but I don't know if they're going to make the next animated movie and like it's going to be glitch art because there's that fantastic um, glitch Simpsons. Uh, I'll put in the show notes. Like, there's there 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 are some great glitch pieces for sure in this space or people that uh, misuse rigging. Like, so character mm-hmm. rigging and the computer. Uh, animation world is like a huge breakthrough, right? That you could have bones and muscles and skeletons and they obey physics, you know, so you yeah. didn't have to figure that all out because that's so hard to do, as we've talked about through this whole episode. Like the history of uh, like representing movement or walking is like really the history of animation and technology. But um, like what might happen next and something I often ask like in a design context is like, if the computer could just like, if you could say like, you're going to start at this point and go to this point, and it would just like walk the character there. And then you're like, well, the gravity is like this. And I want it to be a little perkier. Like you'd start to be like, I want that thing to have a little more personality. The computer would be like, like this, like that, right? Like, and this is already exists in, in sort of uh, architectural practice, but the computer would start to like make suggestions and you would become more and more of a, a director. And I just think it's interesting for That's us to talk about. That's kind of the machinima approach. Well, because ultimately if animation gets to that point, your an- the the world the uh, like sort of fantasy world that you're creating inside of an animated film suddenly becomes just like the real world where you'd have a yeah. director that's trying to get the best out of its talent but it goes in and in and out of, of realism so if you look at the 90s there was a bunch of uh, animated 3d cartoons that mm-hmm. were kind of like Saturday morning cartoons and one of the things that's really hard in 3d is to make things that are not shiny it's mm. really easy to make shiny things. So when you think of Terminator 2 and, and the, the, the evil robot, he's just one big shiny blob. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the thing that 
the material does best. That's the thing that 3D animation does best. So they made a bunch of cartoons. And usually Toy Story, famously, they, they're all plastic characters. So you're not bothered by the shininess. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to make a stuffed animal. It's way easier to make a, a plastic character. Yeah. So they went with that. Um, but then along comes South Park, which the, f the first pilot episode, they actually made out of cutouts of cut paper. Mm -hmm. And they just did the bare minimum of animation. When a character walks, he's just sliding across the screen and the legs are kind of wobbling, but right. they're not corresponding to gravity. Uh, the mouths move very crudely. And that just gave a lot of energy to the characters because all the other stuff is just trying to be super realistic. And uh, th this comes along and it's really funny. And later they um, approach the cutout technique, but do it in Maya, which is a, a 3D software, so they can have layers of cutout paper in front of each other. Mm -hmm. um, but the whole point is that their really crude technique makes it, they can make an episode in six days. Right, and right. The Simpsons, I think it takes huge teams of animators in different countries with different uh, wages, so they have to use uh, the whole um, the term tweening in animation basically meant you had a lead animator who would draw the keyframes. Which were the most important frames. Yeah, whenever you're now using computer code or you're using uh, After Effects and you see the word keyframe, that just meant that person had a higher... Uh, uh, hourly rate <laughs> and and the the cheaper animators would do the in-between stuff the tweening so that that's where those terms come from yeah um, but my point is I think it takes the Simpsons six months to make an episode something like that very long and and South Park's six days so they were able to uh, respond to current events within a week and that just changed the game for what you can talk about in a cartoon yeah, and I mean, maybe South Park is closer to what I'm talking about as the future, which is like kind of the animator as the director rather than the animator as like the physical, like um, illustrator. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But in that space, you're like forfeiting a certain like you have to have either really you know really good writing, or you know you have to really understand the story you're trying to tell. And it would, I mean, so I guess potentially. I mean, animation becomes less about the technology and less about the wizardry of it and more about and takes us all the way back to the original, you know, cartoon spirit, which is more about the choices you make to exaggerate um, reality. Right. So, yeah, whether that's satire or whatever. Um, One of the, it, the, I don't know that there's I've spoken to people uh, who were there at the time in the hippie things in the 60s, and they had these liquid slides, these slides with colored liquids. Mm which is kind of physical animation without a hand. And, oh, and you mean like be. oil and yeah. like kind of but there's not a good dye. word for, for this the liquid slides or whatever, but these light shows that were associated yeah, with like, psychedelia. Yeah. yeah. But that's, no, that's kind of a thing where it's, it's not even animated, you're seeing actual physical uh, movement. But you reminded me that that's actually... But the colors are very cartoony. That's, that was kind of an interesting era for moving images. It was, and it, but it came from uh, another history we haven't discussed, uh, which just and we don't have that much time left. But maybe it's worth talking about the first sort of um, attempts at uh, creating what was called visual music. But abstract expressionism early on was considered an animated format, hmm. and there were. But was there actually are there examples of abstract expressionists? moving towards animated content. Yeah, yeah, there's lots. Um, and, uh, you know, Because there's Oscar Fischinger from the Bauhaus, but that was a bit before, and 
And there's the famous uh, McLaren animator from Canadian TV. Yeah, but the, I mean, I'll just get the history out first, which is that, you know, the artists at the time were um, were trying to do what 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 worked in music for. Um, and they wanted to do the same thing for visual art, right? Which is the idea of a composer. Well, no, it was more the idea that um, that mu- like in music, you didn't have to refer to the representational world, right? So, um, someone like Kadinsky uh, would say, like, well, a musician can like conjure, or like Mo- like Mozart could conjure an emotion and not talk about trees or not have to be a poet or have any lyrics or whatever. Right? Like, could make you feel happy or sad or fearful or angry just with these abstract notes that don't refer to anything specific. How do they do that? And so visual artists were interested in doing the same thing, but with obviously with visuals. But music but with is stills mostly. Yeah, they started with stills and it's interesting. They they started with stills but they would like tra- they would be you had to look at them in time. So you would see like um a study where it might be um like cubes and, and, and circles, they, 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 they went immediately to a minimal place, which I think, you know, obviously works for, for your aesthetic, but like would be like circle, cube, red, triangle, and they would do that on a, on a visual map that might be very long horizontally or very high vertically. And the idea is that the, the viewer would walk along the composition. Like Chinese if, scrolls. Like, yeah, as if it was sheet music, right? Um, but that, and that that might trigger a feeling and synesthesia was a part of the you know what they were trying to do there and they were really seeking this understanding almost as like scientists you know this is kind of like post-enlightenment but people were looking for the truth and like truth and meaning and emotion but then like filmmaker they very quickly start to make experiments with film um and the film experiments are really just animation and they're using a lot of like cheap um abstract sort of like cheap optical effects to to make this work and so it might be like a a cube that like you know spins and then like a triangle intersects it It, and rarely did they have music tied to this the idea was that just seeing these shapes move through space would create an emotion or a feeling um that that was purer and more like more real than reality itself like that would trigger an emotion which I just think is interesting to consider, like given all of the points you've been making about, uh, you know, like this way of interpreting reality, and especially for a child too, like the the sensorial mapping uh, that you're talking about, right? Like feel, like you know, having this like being really in tune with your feelings when you looked at animation or the simplified image. But this, these were they went even further. They just went super abstract with these these images. Yeah, and I, I think there's many moments of artists experimenting with moving images and uh, I think of an artist like uh, like Jack Goldstein have you seen his work he worked with a lot of Hollywood studios and uh, created animated sequences between film and animation oh. I don't know what the point is there but he yeah. uh, he was well, trying to condense animation away from story right well yeah I mean for me it was just it's interesting to consider because you know, it start. This was like totally separate from what like Disney and and people were doing. But then it but ended Disney up. Did but it Fantasia. ended. That then was I, kind of what yeah, you were. Yeah, that's where I'm sorry. trying to go. <laughs> no, but it's fine. <laughs> sorry. So introduce Fantasia because I think, so you know, all of these um, abstract expressionists were kind of experimenting with film and and basic um, motion studies with abstract shapes and so on. And then 
there's a movie called Fantasia that they all a lot of them get hired to make. Um, yeah. So Disney uh, sets about like I mean he famously hired uh, a few artists in the California area to work at the studios anyway because that was a great way to make a living. By the way, artists weren't making a living then either, right? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, and 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 decides to pursue this film that would transcend, like you know, would show that animation could do, you know, it could be like a symphony. It could be real art, right? Yeah. And and Fantasia, I, do you remember going? Have you gone to see it in a theater before? Do you remember your first experience with it? No, I've always seen it at home. But my my little sister is eight years younger, and we had a VHS tape, and she watched it. I think four times a day for four years or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was like, it was pretty, it was pretty important. And I think like, um, when I, I know my father took me there. My father was a designer and he took, he took me to see it because it like was released from the Disney vault. <laughs> and he's <laughs> like, they still did the vault thing back then. Well, it, it, I think it's a, a good example of um, artistic drive, not meeting uh, economic de- demand, but mm-hmm. so Disney wanted to, to put this out there as something he wanted to exist but without a story and without uh, visual gags and a beginning and an ending it's very uninteresting for most people mm-hmm. people like a story with a beginning and ending so I think that's the, the, the difference that we're talking about is this a lot of uh, stories have closure okay there's a problem and it's fixed and then you can go home yeah and, and art often uh, doesn't have that it doesn't have the beginning or ending so it, it, there's an artist that I just mentioned, Oscar Fischinger, who... Who was one of these I early was, people, too, right? Yeah, well, he, he was at the Bauhaus, I think, and he left pretty quickly because of the political climate, so he went to the U.S., and he collaborated with MGM and made animations that were half an hour with uh, classical music and abstract shapes. So it's really when you think of what would it look like if you would animate Malevich or Kandinsky or Rochenko, that's what he was doing. Um... And very interesting things came out of it, and I think they were very influential for something like Fantasia, or some, they were influential to title design and things like that. But I still think it's very difficult for most people to look at something and you can't tell them what the solution is. Mm-hmm. You, you, this idea that there isn't a problem, it's very difficult for people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, though, it's like, um, I don't know. The, the, I think we've arrived at a... A semi. Well, what do you think our good point is today? What have we arrived at here? Have we come my to good any point is that, that we need more cartoons and less news. <laughs> but uh, my point is that cartoons are the news. Uh, but I, I suppose if you look at it through this visual music, um, this visual music lens, it was an escape from the representational that allowed people to make leaps of the you know the imagination. If you carry that thread, this is where we started to psychedelia in the 1970s and drug use. It was people trying to transcend reality, right? And trying to find something new, a new idea or yeah, a new way of thinking. exploration of the mind. Exploration of the mind, but also the exploration of consciousness. And Yeah, that's interesting because it's something that... It, it, when we started this episode, we were saying, should we talk about animation or current events? And there's, there's so <laughs> much crap going on. And I understand that politics is very, very important and it influences everyone's lives. But at the same time, it's the shouting match that you're in, that you're just exploring the shouting part of your brain or the, the, the practical part of your brain. Like, we need better education, we need better healthcare. And the brain can also do other things. So it, 
and of course it's important to have health care and of course it's important to have care for the elderly but sometimes you're like i want to see what my mind does if it goes here or there but that's what i think is you know from my point of view exciting about the topic and you know the reason if if it does allow you to transcend your current reality it might allow you to imagine alternative realities and to help bring those realities to life uh, and though it might seem you might your the reality you want to create might be super exaggerated maybe this is cheesy but like that animation might allow us to speculate on new realities that we can all agree, you know, would be, yeah. you know, more fantastic. Or maybe we don't all agree. Maybe I'm, each of I'm, us pursues a different reality, though. Yeah, way. I'm very hesitant. I, I like art for the sake of art. So we're just exploring <laughs> the mind, and it's not for the goal of something. Because it's funny now that blockchain is happening. People are like, this is going to change everything. It's going to help democracy, and it's going to take out the banks. And mm-hmm. it's the exact same talk when the web started. It's like, this is going to change everything. People are going to be nice to each other. I'm not so sure. But people need a you know a place where they can, you know they can. There needs to be that other, that third thing. There needs to be the puppet show. There still needs to be the like, yeah. the cartoon in the New Yorker. There needs you need to be able to laugh at yourself. And by laughing at yourself, you get outside of yourself. And by doing that, you start to heal. I, I mean, there's one story I read this week that was political that I thought was that does work for this podcast. It was in the New York Times, and it was about how in Germany, there they there's been there's been this like sort of like Nazi. Um, parade that takes place every year in this one town toward like the gravesite of like a, a Nazi general. And the locals were really upset about this because they didn't want to be known as the place where the Nazi parade <laughs> happened every year. <laughs> and so they tried hey, like aren't you political. from that town? Yeah, yeah. I heard yeah. About it. They tried banning it and then it got more popular. You know, they fed the troll. They, they tried like fighting it with weapons and it, and it just like emboldened the Nazis even more. And then one year they decided like, well, what if we used a different strategy? What if we made fun of them and se- and made fun of the whole event? And so they they did things like they made it a like a, a race. They all dressed up, dressed up. Everyone dressed up in clown costumes, you know, and and pretended to be Nazis. And then they would like they drew like a little. Would they mix in with the Nazis? They had a, yeah, they had a, yeah, and they had like a starting gun for the parade and a, and a finish line. And at the finish <laughs> line, they they put they sprayed confetti all over the Nazis. <laughs> and so they created. Yeah, this, so you can solve it with. Silliness. Well, yeah, I think that that's what cartoons do well. And if you if if I had just if I had described a cartoon, you know, that as a cartoon, you'd probably be like, that's totally reasonable as a reality for a cartoon. That's what I was trying to you know say yeah. earlier is that like if we continue to like believe that real means serious, we potentially miss the opportunity that animation teaches us, which is that real it you know being serious isn't always the best way to get through a difficult situation like i think something no. like a, a child who's scared of the skull scene or whatever like you're talking about in the film you had it might be more interesting to kind of exaggerate reality and, and poke fun at it as cartoons were originally intended to do um you know for hundreds of well maybe not hundreds yeah probably hundreds of years but the word hasn't existed that long it's only existed 200 years less than 200 years yeah but, new uh, media that's new media. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's a good point to end on, uh, yeah. unless you want to make another point. But I'm on, I'm on, definitely on your side on this. I think I just see it through, um, a, a, like a different. We're both hopeful, but for different reasons. Yeah, I, I think I'm just, uh, uh, I'm just always very interested in the formal side of things. So I, I, I was completely obsessed with Robert Crumb, and mm-hmm. I was drawing comics. But I was just interested in his hand and how he drew things. And I, if I look back now, I didn't even read the stories. I was just mm-hmm. looking at the yeah. Yeah, and I was so. I was fascinated by that too as a child. But like, 
you know, in a world where South Park exists, right? You also enjoy South Park for different. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. And the hand yeah. there is like. But uh, they, I think they're announcing their new season. It's starting uh, September something, mm-hmm. and they said they don't want to talk about politics anymore. They, they, they feel like there's nothing you can add to that freak show. Mm-hmm. That's they they weird. had a whole season about Trump, and now they're like, it's just going to be kids making fun of each other and fart jokes and teasing and but that in yeah. itself is i would just argue a political action right what, yeah what? everything's political yeah. anyway we don't everything's political the new name of a good boy podcast. <laughs> uh so what's we have a field recording that's festive i think <laughs> that's yeah. like confetti on nazis right well it's uh david kies kio he's a, a a cultural producer Mm-hmm. Maybe he would be happy with that term. He he gets artists together in strange ways and makes publications or events or exhibitions. He's a non-traditional curator. Maybe mm. that's. Uh, and he recorded fireworks. So where are these? Where are these fireworks? fireworks? Are they, is it was it an occasion or he just? Um, let me open up the email. I like how we're super professional. <laughs> just love that clicking noise. Use a yeah. mouse, eh? <laughs> yeah. So, he lives in Spain, I know that. Uh, What you hear are thousands of fireworks exploding, a traditional holiday in my hometown. Every August 13th, in in honor of the patron of the city, we burn millions of euros in fireworks. (laughs) (laughs) It's the night in Alba, so it's somewhere in Spain. He built a beautiful house there in the countryside, and uh, um, he lives there and grows olives in his yard. Fantastic. Well, I you know a firework, a, a beautiful display that's very expensive. It only lasts a few seconds, just like animation. <laughs> Coming together, yeah, for moving colors. All right. Thanks so much for sending that okay. in, and thanks to Thank our you, listeners. Everybody. Yeah, we have lots of uh, field recordings, but we have no advertisements, right? So I, I'll beg you again, if you yeah, have. yeah. I was thinking about that because there's there's so many of our listeners who uh, are sort of hoping to be whatever their product is that, or whatever their thing is hoping it to be successful and and part of it is if you're excited about something you want to share it with people so people always hate on advertising until you have something to sell and you're like how can I let people know about my thing <laughs> so uh, there's this podcast with about a thousand to fifteen hundred listeners in the cultural field um, if you want to let them know something send us some send us an email find our email address if you just search on the web and then uh, yeah we'll read it think of Raphael and I as as Punch and Judy as two puppets that can um, that can yeah. narrate your your score whatever you whatever it is uh, do we have limits would we advertise anything we'd advertise anything yeah I think uh, I don't I, I think there are limits but there are moral if, limits if you have for something me. nice yeah yeah I mean, I'm not going to, yeah. They're, they're, <laughs> I think we're judgment. pretty clear. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks so much. Uh, this is some fireworks.